The other kids, they think I'm weird. I don't want to be weird. If I concentrate hard enough, I can move things. <laughs> the boys. The boys. After the blood comes the boys. Welcome to Now Playing's Harry Retrospective Series. Sin never dies. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King Movie Series. The children are wandering through the wilderness of sin these days, Mrs. Nell. Hosted by Arnie. They're all gonna laugh at you! Stuart. They're all gonna laugh at you! And Jacob. They're all gonna laugh at you! Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series and keep coming back as we continue looking at all the Stephen King-based movies. You'll never forget it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Why didn't you tell me, Mom? Listener discretion is advised. Everybody needs to dance. Today, we're discussing Carrie, this time starring Chloe Grace Moretz, Julianne Moore, Judy Greer, Portia Doubleday, and directed by Kimberly Pierce. I'm Arnie, the immodestly dressed co-host of Now Playing. (laughs) I've been meaning to talk to you about that. Get in your closet and pray, Arnie. It's Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, the devil that always returns. And we are here with Carrie, the film that we thought we'd be doing last spring, the 2013 remake, directed by Kimberly Pierce of Boys Don't Cry. You know, I had a feeling it was going to go this way. All the ads, everything that I was getting. You know, I like Kimberly Pierce's first film, Boys Don't Cry. I like Chloe Grace Moretz. I've seen Julianne Moore in dozens of movies that I thought she was great in. But everything I was seeing in the advertisement told me, this is not a reboot. Normally, when we get to the theatrical relaunch, they do something incredibly different with the story. But nothing I was getting from the advertising was telling me that this was going to be anything more than a very strict, fateful redo of what we've already seen here now for weeks. This is a remake, not a reboot. Are we all in agreement? Oh, yeah. I remember when I saw the first trailer for this. I think it was during Kick-Ass 2. And they showed the whole movie, and I'm like, that's Carrie. I've already seen this. I, I swore. I'm like, there must be some twist. Why would you set this up to be the exact same film unless you're going to have some twist to blow the viewer's mind? Nope. It's a remake. I'm going to say, though, that this has a bit more of a pass. And the reason I say it is it's another adaptation of Stephen King's book. And we've done two reviews of this movie adapted from King's book, De Palma's original and the 2002 TV movie. And when you're basing it off a source novel, then you either have one of two choices – You can either completely change everything and really be loosely based on the book, or you do it faithfully. And so what we have are two faithful adaptations. I think that this one definitely took a few beats directly from De Palma, but unlike some of the other movies that we've reviewed that are straight-up remakes, like the Psycho series, where we they did the shot-by-shot remake. You can hear the review of that this Friday in our gold-level donation. But here, it gets a little bit more of a pass just because it's another adaptation from the source novel versus a remake of an original film. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, if they had just done 
obnoxious things to tweak it just to you know now she's in space or now she's hispanic (laughs) you know there's ways of like sometimes they just throw something in there you know that they know is going to make it feel different and it doesn't feel organic and that's not great either yeah i mean before seeing carrie i saw a trailer for a film and it kind of rang a bell in the back of my head like i know some lines from this film what is this film and it looked like a good film. I had no idea it was a, quote, remake, unquote, of About Last Night. <laughs> yes. There was also a trailer for A New Endless Love, which looks nothing like Brooke Shields' 1980 movie as well. I agree. I'm now old enough to have seen things that I know very well coming back in forms that are nearly unrecognizable. Uh, but they didn't choose to do that with Carrie. What they've decided to do is be very faithful. It has been nearly 40 years. A lot of young people are not going back to a movie from the 1970s. They're not going to relate to it. So is this a bad thing? I'm just going to put this up right now. Is it a bad thing that we're seeing a very faithful, very familiar vision here in the new movie? I tried to think... If there was an example where I loved an original movie and then saw a note-for-note remake and still liked it. And, you know, I kept going to things like, well, I like Body Snatchers 78 and the Fright Night reboot, but those were very different. Do I like one that is nearly scene-by-scene identical? I could only come up with one. And it also stars Chloe Grace Moretz, but... She was in Let Me In, which is a Americanized, nearly identical remake of the Swedish Let the Right One In. And I like both of those movies. So I was encouraged. Once I came up with that example, going into the theater, I'm like, maybe Chloe can do it again. Maybe it's going to be okay if I see every scene, if I like the people that are doing it. You know, Stuart, you said maybe kids won't watch a movie 40 years ago. Well, I'll say they, they watched this because I had a theater full of tweens. And yes, they were rocking out during the prom. They knew what song that was. I had no idea what it was, but they were like swinging back and forth in their seats, getting into the music. So maybe there's something to that. I just to me in this age where everything is available, every form of media, it's not like I got to go rummage through some VHS rental store to find a copy of the 70s carry. I don't know. Maybe kids won't see something. Something that old, but you know, I really wish your guys' psycho review was out because I was thinking that. And man, how do they respond to that? How are they going to respond to this? Because this does almost seem like a case of that psycho remake. I think it's different with Let the Right One In. That's a foreign film bringing it to an American audience. A little bit different. Here we're going from an American film to American film remake. You know, I don't want this set in space, but okay, bring it to the 21st century, updated, make it about YouTube bowling. We'll get into that. I don't know if that really works how they execute it here. But I need to see something different. If you're just going to show me what I've already seen, well, I don't like cover bands, and I I don't like, I guess, cover <laughs> movies. Cover bands, that's a very good comparative. I do think that's what we're watching here. And when you listen to Psycho this Friday, I'm going to repeat about a dozen reasons that Gus Van Zant used for justifying why he made the remake the way that he did. I could only find one for Kimberly Pierce. She spoke to the fact that there has been a lot of headlines lately about teens bullying teens and that child abuse now is done by peers and that she saw that Carrie, this very old story, could be a way of talking about those current events, that it could be very relevant without doing much. Well, I also think she may have seen box office potential with Chronicle. As far as remakes that are 
pretty shot for shot versus updates. Jacob, you used cover bands. I kind of go back to what we've referred to before, the Broadway revival. You know, there's something to be said there. And like Stuart said, modern audiences don't want to see movies that are 40 years old. We saw it in response to our carry review on the Facebook page. Some of our younger listeners just didn't even listen. They put on the Facebook page because they don't care about a movie that old. And some did listen, but say, even though we gave it three strong recommends, they don't want to see it because it's a 40-year-old movie. I know, and some people justified the thing we watched last week. They could relate to it more. So, my God, please, somebody do it better than Carrie 2002. (laughs) Absolutely. If we need another modernization, and I do feel like last week's movie... You know, it's a lot closer in time. There's only, there's only been a decade in between this and that. A lot different between the 2002, 1976. I felt times had really changed between the TV movie and the original. Here, the age is not, I guess we're a little bit more cyber, but by and large, this is basically just a way of never having to think about Carrie 2002 again. This is the <laughs> remake. We will ignore what happened last week, and I will just pretend I never saw it. And The Rage, Carrie 2, I think we can forget about that one. I think that this is a series about the old and the new. This new movie and De Palma's classic. And how much they're going to compare and size up is something that I know I won't be able to get away from. And as far as remakes that I've enjoyed, though, I mean, it gets kind of muddling because how much is A Nightmare on Elm Street, the most recent one, a remake of Wes Craven's original versus how much is, say, The Karate Kid with Jaden Smith, a remake of the original? There are a lot of movies that I've enjoyed the original and the remake. Dawn of the Dead comes to mind, but there's also something indelibly different. So when we get to Carrie here, yeah, it definitely has much more in common with The Karate Kid or the 1990s Psycho than it does with Friday the 13th. Another horror one that comes to mind is Halloween, the Rob Zombie, where the second half of that movie was a remake of the first one. There's a lot of these remakes I do enjoy, and I understand that the only reason they may be necessary is so that these films don't end up in a time capsule. Because growing up, when I was into horror... I wanted 80s horror. I didn't want horror from before my time. It wasn't until I took film classes that I went back to even see the classics, the Universal Monster Mash movies, that kind of stuff. I wanted modern horror with modern effects. I didn't want to make concessions for the time. I didn't want to make concessions for the fashion. So if that's what this is, so be it. As for the director, you mentioned her. I saw Boys Don't Cry in theaters. I was very interested in the story. I was up on the real-life story. I thought it was poorly made. I didn't like that film. I didn't like its pacing. I didn't like its tone. I did not see her follow-up stop-loss, but... No one did. (laughs) (laughs) Coming into Carrie, I actually was torn on how I felt about Kimberly Pierce, because she'd done that semi-docudrama about real-life peer abuse... So coming into Carrie, that's certainly a strange pedigree (laughs) to bring in. But if you listen to my Books and Notchers review of Carrie, I do equate a lot of King's themes with real-life bullying and real-life 
high school relationships. And I like the fact that it's a female directing a female story. I'm hoping maybe she'll be able to bring something a little bit more feminine to this tale that, other than the Rage Carry 2, has been told entirely by males. Yeah, I think the reason you hire Kimberly Pierce is that you want to accentuate the drama. She's not a horror master. She hasn't done this before. She's going to be able to tell the story from a perspective that hopefully feels real. And that's what I'm watching this for. Okay, you're going to hit the same beats as that De Palma one. You're not going to do it with the artistry that De Palma did, the camera moves that he did. Can you fill in some of those gaps? Can you improve? There was room for improvement. There was a lot of questions about character motivations. And Arnie, I listened to your review on Books and Nachos. It seems like there is room for even King to do that. You didn't understand some motivations. You want more character development. So, okay, can we learn from the past and at least improve in some of those gaps? It's not going to look as great maybe on the screen, but can we improve on the storytelling? And that's really my approach going into this film. Did they improve on those opportunities where they were there? And I think you're kind of showing your hand a little bit on the review, saying that it's not going to have De Palma's artistry. I went in wanting to see what this third-time feature director could do. I wanted to see if she had vision. One of the things I love about horror films in general is their creativity. You get to A Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah, it's got Freddy with quips, and I enjoy that. It also has tremendous camera work, good effects for the time on the budget. But really, especially when you get to the Dream Master with Rennie Harlan taking the camera and doing 360-degree turns with it, when you get away from a real-life story where you have to be sensitive and you don't want to offend anybody who's really dead and all that, what could she do if she was cut a little bit more free to tell a horror story? So I went in going, all right, I really liked what De Palma did, but I did not write off Kimberly Pierce at the beginning for not having the artistry. Yeah, if you want to see an artless film, watch the film last week. Kimberly Pierce has a style, but it's not as operatic. She's not going to do split screen. She's not going to make every shot an opportunity to show off with the camera the way that Brian Palma does, or the way that Hitchcock can, quite frankly. The other thing, though, I was wondering how interested are people in a story that's 40 years old and a remake of a movie that's 40 years old especially after this got delayed we'd seen some trailers for it before they went back for the dreaded reshoots to add more horror but i'll be damned if this thing didn't go viral with its marketing they had some really really interesting ways of marketing this did you guys see the coffee shop telekinesis video yes from all 40 of our facebook fans i kept posting it on our page yeah, I, I kept seeing the leak. Usually I break down. I typically don't watch viral things until I can't get away from it. And yeah, that was one where at least a dozen people on my Facebook insisted I needed to share this link with them. So I did. Yeah, it was funny. Here's where I think it succeeded is, of course, it was posted on the Now Playing page. It was posted by a hundred friends of mine who don't listen to Now Playing, who didn't no, it was for Carrie. They really liked the viral video aspect of it, never mind the fact that at the end it had a Carrie tie-in ad. And so they did that. They also had some really, I think it was really strange marketing. Their hashtag on Twitter was Flex Like Carrie, which if it wasn't for us doing this retrospective and specifically me doing books and nachos and going back and knowing that Stephen King described her using her powers as flex, I would think it's some kind of Kegel exercise. <laughs> <laughs> 
or at least another typo. I mean, uh, yeah, I it's not for me. I mean, let's just face it. This ad campaign, it, it, they're going for youth marketing. It sounds like they did a really good job at targeting the way that teens share information. I mean, teens don't look at a poster in a movie theater and go tell all their friends about it. They share a link. And I think that that is the right impulse to getting kids there. But the line flexed like Carrie, you'd only know that if you were already a Carrie fan and had read the book, and specifically the poster that says, you will know her name. I'm like, what is this? I had to dig into this. Do you know what that's referencing? I thought it just referenced all the teens that had no idea what Carrie was. I really <laughs> thought that was a way to mark, hey, you're going to know what this is once you see this film. No, it is a reference to the goddamn Broadway musical. <laughs> where there's a line in one of the songs someday someone will know my name <laughs> what the hell why are you going so obscure with flex and you will know her name it sounds like someone that was too hardcore of a fan was in the marketing department for this one <laughs> now i'm singing fame in my head i mean okay yeah that's that's an obscure connection but i don't think you need to know those references it's kind of like the simpsons i watch the simpsons i laugh at all the things that they're doing i watch it with someone really young and they're just laughing because it's crazy and funny and it feels fresh to them i think that it can work either way i didn't need to know that about the broadway musical to know that Carrie was a memorable character. And I think that however you want to play it, I mean, yeah, maybe it will tap into those three people that saw it on Broadway and loved it and want to go to a movie this weekend. I don't know. But I think that there is a wealth of history with Carrie being made for stage and screen. And yeah, why not exploit that for kids that have maybe largely ignored it up to this point? But the question is, did it work? How was your audience? Mine, very minuscule. I saw it opening night, midnight showing, and there were families there. There was mothers with daughters. There were generational sharing of, let me take you to this movie that was important to me, but wasn't many. I got to say, it was under 20 people in my theater. Well, I saw it Friday night, and it was about, I don't know, a third full. But yeah, a lot of females. Like I said, there's tweens there with their mom, a lot of teenage girls. For a horror film, typically I would think that'd be more male-heavy, but no, a lot of females in this audience. My audience was also minuscule. I think there's probably an issue where you have a movie aimed at 16 and under, starring people who are 16 and under, that's rated R, and... There's a police officer stationed in our theater when R-rated younger skewing horror films come out. This asshole was there for Kick-Ass. He was there for this. Anytime an R-rated movie that might appeal to young people, he is there enforcing the MPAA regulation, which I might add isn't a fucking law. Is it also <laughs> illegal to dance in your town, Arnie? <laughs> Oh, we'll know for sure when we do the Footloose retrospective, <laughs> but uh, all right. Uh, yeah, I agree. It is uh, it is not an easy sell to make an R-rated kids movie. Let's find out what they did. Let's get into it. Yeah, speaking of Broadway, I feel like a cast member on Cats three years into the run. Let's find that same energy for memories. <laughs> is this the same plot summary? It is. Oh, wow. Carrie White is a high school introvert, socially awkward to the extreme, with stringy hair, she's often been the target of practical jokes and ridicule. 
Things are no better in Carrie's home life, where she's berated and abused by Margaret, a self-injuring religious fanatic who believes almost everything, even sex within marriage, is sinful and has never taught her daughter about human biology and sexuality. This leaves Carrie in an unenviable position when she has her first period while showering after gym class and believes something is seriously wrong with her. Her antagonistic classmates are not sympathetic, pelting Carrie with tampons while chanting, plug it up, recording the torment on an iPhone and posting it to the internet. So there's a couple changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we knew that one was coming. Yes, the internet exists now. <laughs> yes, we knew, we knew that was happening. But this trauma awakens within Carrie her power. She is telekinetic. When enraged, she can move objects with her mind, a power that convinces Margaret that her daughter is possessed by a demon. But from the shower incident, Carrie's classmate Sue Snell feels guilty, and, wanting Carrie to have one happy event, asks her boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to prom instead of her. Tommy agrees, and after some coercion, Carrie succumbs to Tommy's pestering for the date. And as she prepares for the night, Carrie starts to come out of her shell, dressing a bit more fashionably, and standing up to her mother, using her powers to overpower Margaret and lock her in the closet. But other student and head bitch Chris has the opposite reaction. She refuses to do the track exercises that are her punishment for her torment of Carrie, and so she's suspended from school and banned from attending prom. Furious, Chris and her boyfriend Billy and a few other students conspire to make prom a night Carrie will never forget. They stuff the ballot box so Carrie is voted prom queen. Then, when she is crowned, Chris and Billy dump a bucket of pig's blood on the girl while playing the original Plug It Up video on the video screen behind her. Embarrassed for the last time and enraged when Tommy is killed by a falling bucket, Carrie goes on a rampage using her mental powers to kill almost all of her fellow students with a few students, one of them being Sue, escaping. Carrie returns home for comfort from her mother, only to be stabbed in the back, literally, by the zealot. Carrie responds by using her mental powers to impale Margaret with every sharp object in the house, but then regrets the decision and hugs her mama close. Sue goes to Carrie's house, and Carrie is about to kill her benevolent classmate when Carrie senses Sue is pregnant. It's a girl. So Carrie pushes Sue out of the house, though gently, no miscarriage, as Carrie also causes the house to collapse, crushing both her and Margaret. So yes, the same plot summary. We've alluded to this. It's the same movie a third time. And I wanted to just see how it could be done. As you are, Stuart, I'm a fan of Chloe Grace Moretz, specifically from Kick-Ass, but everything I've seen her in, I think she's been good. Julianne Moore is good. The rest of this cast, there's only one other person I knew from the entire cast, and that's Judy Greer, and I yes. don't associate her with supernatural drama. I'm watching her, the PE teacher, I'm like, this is a comedic actor. I've seen her before, and I had to look her up, I'm like, okay, she's like the crazy cross-eyed secretary on Arrested Development. I, that's why I was getting a sitcom feel from her. And she had her own sitcom where she was a high school teacher who was completely inept, she was in 13 going on 30. So many comedies. Yeah, she's a comedian. Well, at least maybe I'll, I'll smile with her this time. I mean, I think that that will be the fun of going through this plot again is to seeing the finessing. How has it been tweaked? How does it reflect or reject what has happened before? I think we get it from the get go. I'm relieved that the first scene of the movie is neither fake rocks coming from space. <laughs> 
<laughs> nor uh, just jumping to the high school. We do get a prologue that really sets up Margaret White and her daughter and the love-hate relationship that's going to play out throughout the film. My question is, so we see, you know, her water is broke as it pans up the stairs and the Bible has fallen, a dropped mug that's crushed. She's giving birth, and yet she keeps saying it's this cancer, it's this cancer. I, I really didn't know. Did she not know that she was pregnant? Is this a case? You know, there's those popular shows now, like, I didn't know I was pregnant, where women are crapping out babies in the toilet because they had no <laughs> idea they were actually in labor. Did she Was she in denial? Was she thinking this was some kind of possession? Or, or did she know and she was just cursing this baby as she's giving birth to it? I took it that she didn't know and that she was as unaware of her own bodily function and reproduction as she makes Carrie to be. She is as surprised when she craps out a baby, to use your wonderfully <laughs> sensitive terminology, Jacob. I'm using 21st century terminology. I'm, I'm trying to update my review here for the 21st century. But there's definitely a parallel between Margaret when she's giving birth and Carrie when she's having her first period. That's right. There, There's already a closet in the house. We get shots from within the house and, yeah, the stairway and all that. There's already a closet with a lock on it. That isn't Carrie's closet of punishment. That is a shared place. Margaret White is as sheltered as what she wants Carrie to be and what Carrie is in the beginning of this movie. They are sisters in that way, and it is less a domineering mother role. I do feel like maybe that is a more relatable relationship in the 21st century, parents that feel more like friends than they do authority figures. But yeah, we're going to see that Margaret White is not trying to beat Carrie down. She's trying to keep her with her inside that closet. And I also was thinking when I saw this scene about our review of that 2002 movie where it also started with a similar scene, but it was montage, it was heavily cut up, possibly for television, and we were all trying to figure out exactly what we were seeing with this slashing blade and Margaret White and a baby, and I think if you watch 2002 after this one, you get exactly what they were doing. They were recreating the scene in a very quick cut montage whereas here we get it long and dramatized we don't get the scene of the flaming rocks that 2002 <laughs> was the only one to give us so if you go across all three carrie adaptations you eventually get all of carrie's backstory that king put in the book and i was really looking for a profession of telekinetic powers at, even as this young infant because that was something that they brought up in the 2002 with those awful cgi rocks it's in the book i was wondering if we're gonna get little pebbles fall in the house and i also wondered when margaret brought down that scissor blade did she stop because was there a telekinesis or was it because she discovered she had a love for this child? I'm not convinced of either one. I do wonder if there was a natural instinct in Carrie to keep the scissors away or if Margaret was weak. I think that's a wonderful ambiguity of the film. Yeah, I love that about this moment is that you can take either reading, although I'm definitely going to say that it was Carrie's protection. I mean, there's just something... Uh, about the movement that it looks like later when someone's driving a car at Carrie and they hit an invisible wall, it looks like Julianne Moore is hitting an invisible wall when that scissors comes down. It, it, it's a jump. I got to say the whole audience, uh, all 20 of them jumped <laughs> when, when you go for a baby like that, that had me at that moment in the movie. I'm totally in sync with it. I'm saying, okay, 
we're going to see the same movie before. Yes, they showed this last week, Arnie, but that was just a bloody knife on the ground as they panned up to the woman giving birth. They didn't tell us this story. Last week, it was an image. This week, it's a scene, and it's a conflict, and I like it. I mean, like I said, this is going to be the relationship for the rest of the movie that Margaret White is trying to protect her daughter. She thought she was alone in the world. She thought there would never be anyone for her. And now, all of a sudden, God has given her a partner, and she's just not going to let it go. And I think one weakness of this film is we don't know what happened to Ralph, or even if his name is Ralph. (laughs) I hope it's not Ralph. (laughs) The father of Carrie. He's gone out of the picture, and later on, Carrie is hypothesizing where she got her powers, and she says, Grandma had it, and it skipped you. I don't know how Carrie would know that. Grandma doesn't seem to be in the picture. And then she goes, or maybe I got it from Dad, which means The Rage could be a sequel to this movie. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) We're leaving all our options on the table, depending on how this goes. They really do in this film. They really do. They set it up to go, yep, so we can see the rage in a year or two. Yeah, you could have a prequel that takes place in the 70s with her grandma. (laughs) You could have a sequel with Ralph and the other kids. But I think it's a bit of a mistake that we don't know where Ralph went. You know, you say that Margaret is alone and she didn't think she'd have anyone where did ralph go did he go up the coast to just sleep with the crazy hotties or did he die i would have liked a little more explanation how she ended up pregnant and alone like a bad teenage mtv series yeah there's a story to margaret white that we don't see and it maybe doesn't beg a prequel movie but i just kind of took it to mean that she was maybe in some cult or something and it is weird to think that she's in this big house all alone at least they give her a job we we finally know how she's gainfully employed she doesn't spend her time going door to door saying do you want to join my crazy cult and embrace my saint sebastian figurine she's a seamstress and i think that's one of the nice touches here is they emphasize the idea that she is working at a dry cleaner and that's why Carrie has the skills later to make her own dress. It's something that mother and daughter share, another aspect that they share. And I did like that because I was wondering the same thing. How does she afford this home? And she does have a job. And I like the conflict that that job brings here. You know, Margaret, I do I need a prequel about her? No, but I would have liked to known some more detail about her. You know, she has this guilt. We see as... Sue's mom is picking up the prom dress at the dry cleaner that Margaret was working on. You know, she's talking about, oh, this beautiful low-cut neckline. And you could tell Margaret's doing this because she needs a paycheck. She needs to pay those mortgage payments. But she's also self-abusing her. She's taking out, like, a needle and stabbing herself because she feels, I don't know, she's selling out her religious principles. I think there's an interesting conflict there. I would have liked that developed more, that she is such a religious zealot But even she realizes she has to compromise to be able to make a living. Yeah, this is something right out of the King book that she worked at the laundromat, not the seamstress or the self-cutting thing. Those are new additions. But yes, she does have a job. They do mention, you know, she gets to redo Piper Laurie's monologue at the end where she talks about living sinlessly with her husband. So that she was married and they had sex once and Carrie was the result. Yeah, they cut out the wonderful, the whiskey lines, though. Yeah. I, I love that. 
Maybe she killed him for putting it in her. Maybe that was her retribution. She's kind of homicidal in that religious fanatic way. I'm surprised, though, because if you go back to King's depiction, both mother and daughter were kind of heavy set. But here, both mother and daughter, they're taken from the De Palma film, right? I mean, her big hair, her crazy eyes. The red hair. Yeah. I, I think that's Julianne Moore's defining characteristic. She's a, a redhead star. They're definitely going with De Palma's image of these characters. In fact, Sissy Spacek said that she was flattered that they're making Carrie look like her instead of how King wrote her. Please, that Chloe Grace Moretz is no Sissy Spacek. I'll take Chloe any day. You know, but here <laughs> here is a major problem for me. This is where there's a real opportunity. We saw with Spacek, we saw with Bettis. You know, they're attractive, but there's something off about them. That you could see why they would be rejected, be made fun of in their class. Either real skinny or Bettis just has a strange look about her, the way she walked. Chloe Grace Moretz, she just needs to pay 50 bucks to get a blowout, and she's pretty good looking here. There is nothing <laughs> off-putting about her. You know, maybe her clothes need to be updated, but I feel, okay, let's really push this. You talk about in the book that Carrie was overweight, she had back knee. Let's really push that. I, I think it's kind of easy to sympathize for Carrie because she's in all these different visions. She's kind of good looking. She's she's not horrific looking. Let's really push the audience's perceptions. Make this someone that's ugly. See if we still side with her at the end when she's getting revenge because she's not a typical beauty. I think this was a real missed opportunity. Nothing against Grace Moretz's acting. I, I think she did a pretty good job with the way she portrayed Carrie, but it's just the look. I wanted to see them push it and you know they're still using the lines. Pig's blood for a pig. Let's push it and let's go with that vision and test audiences. Really confront them. If you're going to make a film about bullying, make this a despicable person that even by their looks, that, that is something that challenges what we would want to look at or that what we would want to side with and say, hey, even though they're not a beauty, you still got to protect these people that are being bullied. I thought this would be my problem with Moretz. I thought it's because she's already blossomed to be a very beautiful woman, and how are they going to frump her up? I saw the, her in the trailers and went, uh-uh, this is not it. I think, actually, now that I've seen the movie, it works to cast her in this way. I think this is a big difference between this movie and King. They are not saying that she is a vision of ugliness that everyone has rejected. She is just as cute as the popular girls, but she is off on her own. She is standoffish. She's not a social pariah because of what she is. She's a social pariah because she hasn't learned the skills to be like the popular girls. And they'll play with that, with imagery throughout the movie. They're, in parallel, going to see her very much as a mirror image to Chris here. I think Chloe Grace Moretz, the way that she looks works for this movie. My problem is, I don't know that she sells it to me in the performance. Oh, crap. I disagree completely on so many levels with what both of you have said. I said during Kick-Ass 2, Chloe Grace Moretz is an unconventional form of attractive. She does not have cover girl looks the way the girls cast as Chris and Sue have. Chris and Sue could go off and be models on the front cover of Glamour or Vogue or something. Chloe Grace Moretz, what she has is a tremendous, tremendous acting skill, and she is 
attractive, but in an unconventional way. Well, well, you're saying models are the only, that's the conventional way to be attractive? Absolutely, I'm saying that. I, okay. I, I don't agree that. I, most women I see are beautiful, but not models. Right. I agree with that. And I think that's what Kimberly Pierce is playing with. I hear what you're saying. She isn't a supermodel, but she is very attractive looking. The movie never tries to disguise that. It never tries to say, oh, she's an ugly kid. I think she tries to portray it, though, the way she juts out her lips and keeps her eyes and her body language. I think she tries, and I think the movie goes with this, trying to upplay, especially in the early scenes, her gawkiness. That said, even though this movie was filmed before Kick-Ass 2, or most of it, I got more glamour off of her here, and it did bother me that... Like I said in my book review of Carrie, all the Carries, yeah, just give them one day in a spa and all of a sudden they would be exceptionally attractive people, or at least Sarah Jessica Parker attractive. So I do have a problem with that. As for Chloe Grace Moretz, though, I disagree about the selling it. She sells me on this character and every bit of it. I so go with her character arc. I am completely impressed with what she does with this character from the opening scene. It's a volleyball game again, water volleyball, (laughs) but all the way through her acting. I didn't think anyone could match SpaceX. She does. I'm not going to go that far. Here, here's my problem. This is why I want someone that is really pushing the boundaries of what we think is beautiful or attractive because 21st century, we're updating this. We're going to have YouTube in this. Maybe the 70s, uh, because I wasn't in high school then, I'm not as familiar with the social cliques, but I, you know, going to high school when I did, we had our Bible clubs where they got around the flagpole and prayed in every morning before school. We had our geeks, our AV geeks, our punks, uh, the goths. We had all these different groups. Yes, some were picked on by the jocks, but everyone had their cliques. It was very rare that someone didn't find a group to fit in with. You know, with the 70s, De Palma vision, I I could go with that because I just, I don't know what high school is like then. But today, I, I don't know, it just seems like everyone has a group today that there's so many branches of cliques that you could hang out with. That There wasn't some other crazy Bible person that she could be friends with. I, go, that's like the last taboo. You know, you you can't discriminate someone because they're handicapped or race or any of that sexual orientation today, but you can still make fun of someone that's fat. Like, I really feel like that's where they could have gone with this. I think that there are still those loners and not that they can't find people like themselves, but they don't have the social skills to find people like themselves. I'm sure there was a religious group somewhere in that school. It seemed like a big school, but that doesn't mean there's absolutely no one who, when they go to school, can't find a friend in the hall. So I think that's an overgeneralization. Yeah, 99% of people in the world have some friends somewhere, even if the click is smaller, but there will be those that do not have the friends. And They also add the fact, we talked about this with 2002, I said, I don't understand why in this day and age Carrie wouldn't be homeschooled. She was homeschooled until fairly recently, so she had zero skills. She didn't grow up with these people. They mentioned her in sixth grade, so maybe she got to school in sixth grade. She's been with them for six years, but not for 12. The cliques had formed, and... They even call out, and I kind of like this, when Chris and Sue are facing off about why Sue is being nicer to Carrie, it's that Carrie kind of calls some of this on herself, because to Carrie and her mother, at least in sixth grade, every one of them was going to hell except for the two of them. They were the only two pious ones. So instantly, it's a good way to piss off every single person in your class if your first day at school, you're like, well, you're going to hell and I'm not. 
<laughs> uh, you know, I, I agree largely with what you said, Arnie. The difference feels that she hasn't been identified as something to hate. I think she's been ignored. I think that this is a different impulse here with Carrie. It's not that she is abhorrent. It is that no one notices her. She is just as cute as anyone else, but she doesn't sell it to us. And so she doesn't have those skills. It's because her mother wants to be alone that she herself hasn't learned how to cultivate friends. She could definitely have them in the school with the internet and all the different cliques. She could be very well adjusted here. She's not because she hasn't moved away from her mother and from her closet. I think that this is a story about closeting. That said, and I'm going to go back to this because this is a real sticking point here with Carrie. You said that she tries to sell us on her outsiderness. Tries being the key word there. She is the big star of this movie. I don't know anyone else in this cast that is her age. My eyes are always paying attention to Chloe Grace Moretz. She is giving the best performance that she can but she is miscast. She has a star quality that cannot be dimmed, and they're trying to say by having her slunk her shoulders and stand in the corner that she's an outcast. I never buy that. I never once believe this is someone that doesn't get attention. I do. It, it helps as it goes along. Honestly, the more Carrie comes out of her shell, the more I like her. I had a problem early on in this film, because after the shower scene, and I thought she did very well in the shower scene playing panicked and she did very well in the principal scene playing scared but when her mother comes and drives her home you know another 21st century concession they involve the parents after this immediately she doesn't want to go inside to talk to her mother she knows what's inside is waiting the closet and even before she realizes she has telekinesis she's standing up to her mother saying i don't want to go in i want to talk about this outside where you can't drag me into a closet and that is a little bit of a concession for modernization is that because she's in a public school system, because she's exposed to this, she's already a little defiant even before her powers. And maybe that's a concession because the actress is a star. And you're right. I don't know these other characters either. I looked them up. Most of them haven't worked much. But I do have my eyes on her. I think that's a good thing, but I think Carrie starts off a little too strong. Maybe it's the portrayal, maybe it's the writing. I think it's both. But as she comes out of that shell, as she flexes, then the portrayal gets even stronger as well. I think we're saying the same thing. Later in the movie, when she becomes self-confident, I buy it. But that's because I never buy her as being timid. And I'm right there with you, Stuart. As this film goes along, I'm more on her side. I'm I'm going with the film more because, yeah, she is confident. She It's easy to believe that she's like that. At the beginning, yeah, when she's standing up to her mom, Arnie, I'm like, well, give me some more backstory. Give me some more development. Show me some more disputes between them so I can buy why now all of a sudden she's defiant. It's just so sudden, but that's why I believe Chloe Grace Moretz is, maybe because I'm going off a of hit girl, that later on in the film when she has that confidence, yeah, I'm going with it. But at the beginning, no. Yeah, I, I think that Hit Girl, unfortunately, has colored her career. I'm completely comfortable when she's out killing people. I'm like, yeah, this is who she is. I buy her as the tormentor. I don't buy her as the victim. I don't see her as the victim. It just doesn't make any sense. She's obviously the biggest star anytime she's in the room, and no amount of slouching is going to have me forget that. But I do think the rest of the cast is very well put together. Even though I don't know most of them, 
I think the look and the way they play it, I think the supporting cast is really good and helps create the environment in which Carrie is going to be tortured. I mostly agree. I think that Sue and Chris are really well done. And it's kind of funny because I've come to expect in movies the blonde to be the bitch and the brunette to be the down-to-earth real one. And here they kind of flip it. The brunette is the bitch and the blonde is the nice one. I love that. It really did confuse me when Sue starts, like, backing off in the locker room. I'm like, oh, so they're reversing the roles. Chris is going to be the good one in this. I, you know, <laughs> I, I've been used to the blonde being the bad one in these films and the brunette being the good one. Yeah, Kimberly Pierce, brilliant choice on that. She knows there is a bias against beautiful blonde women and that we're just naturally to assume in a movie like this that they're the cruel tormentor. That she's playing Sue is, I think, a brilliant choice. I also like that Chris is the first one to say plug it up, but when she first says it, it's not a taunt. It's like the obvious thing to do. Here's a tampon. Plug it up. And then when they all realize it, that's when it becomes a chant. I like that it comes about naturally. Like, the first thing to do isn't ridicule the bleeding girl. It's like, what the fuck are you doing? Just plug it up and get over it. One of the other things I like, too, with this, I always wondered, why did Sue turn? Why did she go on to Carrie's side? In the previous films, there was always a scene with the gym teacher where she kind of pulls Sue out and says, I can't believe you're doing this, amongst all the other girls ridiculing Carrie right then. But here we see Sue, she makes that change on her own right there in the locker room where she kind of goes, oh, this is kind of bad. This, this is really not how I want this to go. I, I, it's a little change, but it, it helped me buy her character more. I think it's about being seen. You know, nobody was even paying attention to Carrie in the shower. She's running out with blood on her. I don't think they would have noticed had she not wiped it on them. I mean, truly, she's invisible to these girls. And so, yeah, they can be mean as long as they don't see her as a person. What happens, the 21st century twist to this is that they make her seen by everyone by videotaping it. Chris is evil, not because she throws a tampon at this girl. That would have been just a bad prank. But the fact that she videotapes it on her cell phone and uploads it is what makes her the villain. It's what makes it a punishable offense by Desjardins about not going to prom. Now, I really do like the casting here. I'll go through it a little more, but here with Desjardins, you bring her up. She's the casting that does not work for me. Again, I said that Judy Greer is a comedian, and my God, does she lack the gravitas to pull off the hard-ass gym teacher. First of all, I don't believe she could do a single of the sprints that she's making her students (laughs) do. Second of all, she just has this wispy way about her. I know Greer is trying her damnedest, and she's the closest thing, other than the two stars, to a name this film supporting cast has, but... Man, you said Chloe Grace Moretz is miscast? No. Desjardins is miscast. I actually like her. It's the first time I've actually (laughs) liked Desjardins. I've spent this entire series talking about how I felt there was a hidden agenda with this woman and that she was just as an abusive mother as Margaret White was. I don't get it. When you have Judy Greer here, she feels like she wants to help. I get the sense, even when she slaps her, that is not about her rage at Carrie for being naive. She's just trying to take control of a situation. And yeah, she's not as bossy. She's not the typical gym teacher that's physically built and gruff and no one wants to mess with. She is lacking confidence. And I think that that helps her seem relatable, at least to me. I Finally, uh, Mrs. D, I could root for 
I never buy into her performance. It always seems like she's going through the motions. Hey, there was a slap in the original. There was this line in the original. There's no weight behind any of her lines or actions in the way she performs Miss Desjardins. See, I agree with you, Jacob. I think she's better written here. I agree, Stuart. In the past two films, I couldn't help but think when I'm watching this one how you guys saw Desjardins or whatever her name was in De Palma's Collins as possibly a bad guy. And I hadn't really seen that. I saw her as the innocent victim of Carrie's rage at the end. But in this one, yes, she is written to be more sympathetic. That said, she plays the sympathetic scenes a little bit creepy. Like later on, when Tommy has asked Carrie out and there's that scene where Carrie confides this in Desjardins, I get a little creeped out when a teacher is saying, he's dreamy, isn't he? She's a little too buddy-buddy with the students. It happens again at prom. All these teachers want to bang their students. There's a scene later where the English teacher is like winking at one of the female students. This is a bad school. Yeah, I just don't get hard ass from her when she's the one she's not she's not a Bullshit, hard ass. she is because the principal here is so ineffectual in the 2002 version in king's original book when chris's dad goes to stand up for chris it's the principal who powers him down here the principal's the stummering stammering idiot as desjardin who says let me see the phone the principal can't dole out any punishment it's desjardin who is tasked with punishing these girls completely independently she is the school authority figure and greer does not sell authority figure i disagree i like the fact that she's not as punishing as the other visions of this but i i think what you're saying is is a help they didn't make her a hard ass they made her someone that wants to fit in that wants to be liked who was just literally shocked by what they did by uploading the video and that's why she makes the decision i believe that it's exactly the situation it presents itself to be and not a hidden subtext that she's angry with these girls or that she just has an axe to grind and i think it's good yeah she doesn't go at the Chris and say, give me your phone and drop and give me 20. She plays it real cool. She's like, you know what? I probably overreacted. You're right. If we can just look at your phone, I'll let you go back to prom. I mean, she's playing the nice cop here. She's not the bad cop. No one is the bad cop. This is a school full of weak authority figures. And I see it like Arnie. I see she's supposed to come off as the badass when she's making him run suicides and she's trying to stare down Chris when she's defiant. And yeah, that scene in the principal's office, I think she's supposed to be badass, but she falls back to that sitcom acting where oh i'm gonna play the innocent good cop and that's how i read it i'm like oh she's supposed to be being tough here but she's playing it like this as a comedic role yeah i think she was written to be a stronger character than greer has the ability to play but you want to talk about bad teachers the absolute worst teacher (laughs) and i can't believe they took this from de palma's is that english teacher who makes fun of carrie what an asshole teacher i mean this guy if anybody should be completely fired he calls her up in front of class to read and then mocks her for saying the most she's ever said and says her poem is disturbing it is a painful scene to watch because this guy should never have been hired every now and then i get in my head this notion that i'd like to go back to public school and and help young people and be a teacher (laughs) and then i see scenes like this and I'm just like, oh, God, I'm cured instantly. I'm like, I don't want anything to do with this here. Yeah, I get this sense that the school is filled with ineffectual people. This guy can get away with that because
because the students don't care. He doesn't care. Nobody cares about Carrie. Except, you know, this is Tommy's moment. I like the fact they switched this. In the original, I got the sense that it was Tommy was the dreamy one. Tommy could plagiarize a poem, and the teacher's going to fawn over him. Beautiful! Yes. Here, it's that Carrie finally shares something she knows, which is, I believe it's biblical. Later, it's ascribed to Samson. It's actually Milton. Oh, Milton. Okay, I couldn't get a sense of what it was, but it's the kind of thing she would have been read as a kid. You know, she didn't get Goodnight Moon. She got crazy, you know, uh, religious stuff put in her head. And so uh, the fact that he knew it could relate to it, I think that this helps their bonding later. Tommy and Carrie are more believable by the way they framed it here than they were even in De Palmas, where I felt like he was just doing a favor for Amy Irvin. Yeah, can I say this is the best Tommy Ross can recreate that as far as the characterization goes? I, I feel like they took from both the De Palmas and from the TV one. I don't think they took anything from the TV one, Jacob. No, 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 no. I think they just Listen. did stuff similar to the TV one. Nobody watched that 2002. Okay, well... <laughs> <laughs> they paid attention. They got something similar because one of my problems with the TV one is Tommy Ross. They try to make him more of the sensitive, the Freddie Prince Jr. guy. And he's like attacking his own peers in the library when they're making fun of Carrie. And it's just out of nowhere here. You know, he's defending Carrie, but it's to a teacher. I could get that a student. You know, they want to stand up to this authority figure, but he's also defending Carrie. To me, that's more believable. That's more relatable that, you know what? You might be this weird girl that hangs out by yourself, but fuck this teacher, fuck this authority figure. He's not going to get away with making fun of us young kids. I'm going to come down the middle on Tommy here because this is the closest portrayal of Tommy that we've had to King's book because this is the first one to have the scene where Sue is talking to Tommy and Tommy plays the part of Sue's conscience for a bit, talking about that sixth grade bully who he kicked in the ribs when he was knocked down and telling Sue, you know, did you apologize to Carrie? I can't believe you did that to Carrie. So so in that way, I think Tommy is better written. I haven't liked either of the Tommies. I thought William Cat was the worst and most bland of the Tommies. And so I liked the way he was written. This actor, I had some real problems with, and it's because I'm an old fogey. It's because <laughs> I don't like how kids today are like, I hypnotize my boy's dog. You know, I just, his delivery... It is his first role. Yeah, his delivery, maybe it's very natural, and in fact it is. It started reminding me of my nephews. But as the movie went on, he grew on me, his portrayal grew on me, and I'll agree he ended up being the best Tommy. I also like that, I disagree with that he wasn't just doing this for Sue. I like that he was just doing this for Sue. He's a nice guy. He's going to do what he can to give Carrie that good night. It's like taking a dog that's been abused out of the shelter and he's going to try to comfort her and get her out of the crate and provide some treats and some pets. But when he goes to get punch, he's texting his girlfriend, I miss you. He is a loyal boyfriend and unknown father to be. I like that this was never going to be more than a one-night Cinderella fantasy for Carrie. Tommy was loyal to Sue, doing it for Sue, but he's just a nice guy. This character, he really freaking grew on me. To, by the end, when he died, the whole cast grew on me. I This is the first time I watched Carrie where, like, midway through, I'm like, oh, please change the ending to be happier. And I do feel like that is 
props to Kimberly Pierce. I mean, yes, the cast should be celebrated. They're the ones giving the performance. But it's her instinct that's making everyone go for the realism. There's no hard villains in this movie. Even Margaret White is not the shrieking operatic nightmare that Piper Laurie was. Her instinct is to, let's keep this real, let's be natural, let's downplay the lines, yeah, plug it up instead of, plug it up! I mean, I think that these are directing choices that are really helping me really, yes, emotionally connect with these characters. Brian De Palma's is a better made movie as a horror movie, as a stylistic movie, but the character beats, we talked about it. There were things that were missing or that we were left curious about. Here, I think that those things have been plugged up. I think Kimberly Pierce plugged up the plot holes and inconsistencies in character. I also really like the portrayal, though, of Chris and Billy. You know, we talked about how 2002 had the worst, worst Billy Nolan. But here, I like that we get that same kind of crazy evil off Billy that we got in the 2002 version. But they really make Chris a partner. I like that these two are lovers and they plot together to do this. When they go to kill the pig, he smashes the brain, but she is right there ready to slit the throat. He wants her to do it. She wants to do it. I like that they're partners in evil. Can I just say that that scene's kind of hot, too? I I never thought that a big slaughtering could be sexy, but <laughs> yeah, it does. I get chemistry out of those two together. When they're doing Wicked, it turns them on. And they like each other more because they go each other into doing it. I mean, Chris had the idea of uploading it, but I think because Billy saw it, he envisioned the dumping. It didn't come from Chris. Yeah, there's no blowjob scene where she has to convince him. <laughs> no, and I think that this is the theme of the movie. Again, once you were seen, it changes things. If he had just heard about some girls in the locker room that went crazy, he went, yeah, that's great, give me a blowjob. But because he can look at the video and see it, he can plan another public shaming of blood. And I think that we hear in lines of dialogue that it's his idea to do the bucket trick. It doesn't come from Chris. They feed off of each other. And we see it. I mean, I see that there's a rage that mirrors Carrie's own in Chris. She looks like Carrie does when none of her friends stand up with her on the track field and she has to be expelled alone. I do get the sense that her rage is very similar to Carrie's rage. It's the whole idea is the villain is, is that when people don't support you, you, you turn angry and abusive and who knows what you're going to do when you feel isolated. And the blood becomes so natural when they're uploading that video. They're like favorite movie, blood sport, favorite drink, bloody Mary. They really create a theme of torment with blood that helps the pig's blood feel more natural than even in King's book. I mean, it's, it's subtext that Carrie starts and ends bloody. It's here overt, and especially when they play the video in the background, it starts hitting you over the head like Tommy with a bucket, starting and ending in blood. This whole film is covered in blood. It's something I noticed. It starts with the blood through the labor, uh, the bloody handprint on the Miss Desjardins skirt after the period scene. That was so pronounced, I thought it was the Under the Dome ad. <laughs> I mean, throughout this film, there is blood scene after blood scene. There's blood splattered all over this. I didn't buy that kids would know a Van Damme movie. I got to say, that was 
that was a hard thing to swallow that her favorite movie would be Bloodsport. I'm like, come on. They did not go back to that 1988 Chop Saki movie. But yes, I agree. There's a blood motif here. There's something with the flower. You know, I get the sense that Chloe's innocence is the flower. Then later when she gets it dumped, not only is she covered in blood, but they particularly focus on that flower, that white flower, that virginal flower at the end of the gravesite. It's Chris that brings that flower. There are visual cues here. There is a visual style to this movie. It is not as pronounced as Brian De Palma's vision. But I think that, again, we can compliment Kimberly Pierce for at least having a vision here with cinematically looking and retelling this story. I really like the way the story is told and paced. One of the big problems I had with De Palma's carry was the pacing and how especially that middle act of teen angst just wasn't quite playing for me. And I didn't even notice this. None of us did. One of our listeners called it out. The way De Palma's is told, you've got Chris and Billy out there slaughtering pigs before anyone even really is aware Carrie's going to prom. What were they going to do with that pig's blood if they didn't know all that? Maybe they're just going to dump it on her in the hallway. I mean, <laughs> that was about revenge. But Artie, you're saying the pacing here works better. They still have the same scenes. It's still the group of guys trying on tuxes girls you know you have these two twins and you think they're looking in the mirror but no haha they're looking at each other doing the same movements there's still those same carryover yeah but it's a two-minute montage instead of a scene that's so long they have to go into fast forward mode in the middle i think you're both crazy for thinking the first movie had this incredible lag in the middle what they've done is sequenced it better so that things are building they don't feel like random scenes that cut back and forth. I agree with you. You actually get the sense that building towards prom is happening. I just am saying that with the pacing, yeah, I don't think I'm crazy. I don't like De Palma's pacing. Here, because it builds and because the montages work in their montage fashion and don't have weird fast-forward bullshit just because they don't want to cut the scene, it feels like a standard movie. Yeah, I don't know who these guys are behind Tommy. It does look like an in-sync disc cover when they're all posturing with their tuxes. But Oh, come on. That's Vampire Weekend. I know that song. <laughs> but it works for me very well. One thing, though, that I really love about the build-up is Carrie and her powers. Here we get to see her testing her powers in the bathroom at school and the facial expressions Moretz makes. She has this ability to flare her nostrils. I noticed those nostrils. Maybe that's why they think she's a pig. Those nostrils flare <laughs> so much in this film. Maybe she's just used to wearing a mask from those kick-ass films. That's how she just breathes normally now. But I love her testing her powers and here's what I get from this version of Carrie I've never gotten before. Carrie's power is what corrupts her. She is already turning evil before prom, when her mother won't let her go to prom. I mean, she turns into Darth Vader, right? She lifts her mother off the ground, and the mother can't speak. <laughs> With the hand out, force choke, yeah. motion, yeah. <laughs> yes, and I think that that's a great choice. I wish we even got a little bit more of it. They kept, creepy Carrie, creepy Carrie. I would have liked to seen one other scene of her using her power to hurt her bullies. Because I think, again, the theme is 
no one is seeing me, so I can do whatever I want. And it would be nice to see, you know, when she's walking along and making trees blow in the wind and smiling, it's Tommy that pulls her back from the brink. If she hadn't been asked for prom, she probably would have killed them all anyway. She would have just walked into prom Columbine style and taken them out. I think that's what they were getting at here. And I, I would have liked to have seen one more scene to establish the fact that Carrie was going to kill them regardless. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Stuart. I li- Arnie, like you, I like that they show this. I got the sense that, yeah, she was being corrupted by her powers. This powerless girl, this is now how she's been empowered. I would have liked, yeah, like you, Stuart, to seen that brought out just a little bit more. I, th- I think it would have capped it a little bit better. I think it works for me in the way the story is structured that it is her mother where she is changing the power. You know what else I got out of this, though? Is Carrie's life was love through abuse. When she's using her powers, her mother comes up to investigate, but brings a knife again. She's always ready to gut her daughter, even before the power. No, no, I I think she always has something sharp in her hand. I mean, whether it's sewing scissors or, yeah, a kitchen knife, she's about protecting. They keep using that in dialogue. She is trying to protect Carrie. She keeps saying, I'm not going to let anyone hurt you. Of course, it's going to be her doing the hurting, but she doesn't see it that way. She's a person that goes through life ready to shank people because she's afraid. No, I... I I got the sense that there, she thinks there's something, yes, she came to love her daughter before she stabbed it in the face as an infant, but she always has this sense that there's something wrong with her, that she's possessed, and she grabs that knife, I, it's not because there's someone raping her upstairs, it's, she, she thinks she's using some kind of demonic powers, there's something demonic going on in that room. But what I love is that I think Carrie has learned love through pain and love through abuse, her mother forces her in the closet, drags her in the closet, beats her into the closet and when the tables turn i love that carrie throws her mother in the closet ruthlessly but then goes to the door and is like i love you mama i believe it this is how she was taught to love love through overpowering it's the love that her mother gave her i'm protecting you I'm throwing you in the closet because that's where you'll do no harm to yourself. I love the fact that they've given this bit of business to the character of Margaret White, that when she is around other people, her social awkwardness manifests itself in scratching or stabbing, not other people, herself, that she just, again, she's always someone with the knife ready to stick it in there. She's socially awkward to the extreme and they've turned the closet really into a metaphor for the womb she's not been able to go out in the world she wants to keep carrie right there with her i think it's great i also think that julianne moore succeeds in a way that patricia clarkson tried to and miserably failed last week by downplaying the margaret white evilness i think that this is a very loving interpretation of margaret white she loves her daughter and i get that and i think that that was nice to see that it wasn't just about you're something i never wanted and i should have killed you at birth margaret white is a person that desperately wants to be loved but she doesn't know how and she ends up sticking other people or herself i could see it both ways i didn't take it as completely loving though she is a self-abuser i Thought that might have been a little too easy of a portrayal of a religious fanatic. I kind of thought they might be cribbing a little bit off of Da Vinci Code with the self-flagellating religious devotee. But 
I love her portrayal here. It's totally different than Piper Laurie, but it is equally creepy. And I do get abusiveness, self-abuse, abuse to her daughter. Oh, it's misplaced love. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't have wanted to have been raised this way. But <laughs> everything that she is doing, I believe her words. She's doing it to protect Carrie. She believes she's doing what's right as a parent to keep her away from the school. I'm just going to homeschool you until the state tears you away from me. And then I'm going to rush over there and take you after they abuse you. And I'm not going to let you go to prom because they will hurt you. She is someone that has been damaged by life. I get the sense that her craziness doesn't come from her religious beliefs, but from some kind of damage. Religion was just one way she used to try and deal with it. But she is someone that has been in the background that has never been able to connect with another person. And she's doing it to her daughter because that's all she knows. You raise someone the way that you know how to live. And so that's what she's doing. Yeah. Margaret White is severely mentally ill. I, I think we could agree to that. And maybe that it comes out through the religion. That's how that illness is portrayed. But yeah, there is something not right with her. I do have to say with Julian Moore, if you're going to do the downplayed version, I still love Piper Laurie's interpretation of the character. But yeah, if you're going to downplay it and try to make it more grounded, heads and tails way above what we saw last week, where she's quiet, she's not screeching, and she doesn't have that crazy look. But there is something, I don't know, I guess they just didn't put makeup on her in this film. There is something creepy about her when you see her, the way she holds her face in this permanent scowl. And there's more tension there with her in the room because she's not screeching and flailing about she's very stiff a lot of times you know again going back to that scene in the laundromat where she's just secretly pulling out this needle pin and and scratching her leg as she's having this conversation not showing any emotion there there is something very creepy about that that is my favorite scene in the movie that my absolute favorite scene in carrie doesn't have Carrie in it at all. It's that moment where Julianne Moore, who is not a frontline person, she's the person you stick in the back doing the sewing. She is not customer service related and greeting the customers. I love the fact that she has that moment with Sue's mother right there in the laundromat. I do think it's the scene with the most tragedy to it, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good scene. I love what Julianne Moore is doing with the character here. I love the portrayal. Julianne Moore... Very gifted, sad that she's reached that age where this is the roles that she gets to play, but she plays it to the hilt. <laughs> she does get top billing, though. I, you know, she could at least command that. But we are approaching prom, and I'm kind of surprised in some ways that despite the fact that all the production crew said that the King book was their Bible, when they have questions about portrayal, they go to the King book. Maybe Kimberly Pierce and Chloe Grace Moretz and even Julianne Moore, she not only read King's book, she read King's autobiography on writing to find out more history about the real-life characters King based the characters on to add to her portrayal of Margaret. But Maybe the screenwriter saw De Palma because they still insert De Palma scenes like when Ms. Desjardins has her confrontation with Tommy and Sue right out of the first one where William Cat was so goofy and again playing that beat of Tommy not really wanting to go with her and willing to back off because the teacher says so, but Sue pushes the issue. Well, yeah, but look at the screenwriting credit. Larry Cohen, the author of the original, is still credited. They're basically saying, yeah, we took that original script. This other guy who writes for Glee uh, did some modification, but largely, much like Psycho 1998, we took the original script and reshot it. Yeah, I cannot find anything in all of the interviews, all the articles I read about Lawrence Cohen 
actually participating in this. I think he's credited because it's his screenplay. And yeah, this guy from Glee who also happened to write Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. Oof. <laughs> Maybe he told him what pop music to play. <laughs> but they do that and we finally get to prom. And man, I also feel like an old fogey because... I remember when prom was borrowing your parents' car. Now prom is getting made up like a starlet on the red carpet with the stretch limo and everything. Oh, no, no, no. This seems kind of old-fashioned to me. I mean, there's stories people riding helicopters and flying into their proms. I mean, when I went to high school, we had to take a bus because they were so sick of people trying to one-up each other with this extravagance. They threw everyone on buses and drove them to wherever the prom was being held. Yeah, my data Chi-Chi's just would not cut it in this day and age. I agree. And if you ever want to see, I don't know if it's still on the air, but but if you ever want to see this kind of decadence, uh, MTV for a while had a My Sweet 16 yes. birthday party show, and I got hooked into that one day. I mean, I just couldn't <laughs> believe the amount that these parents are willing to dump on their kids for what should be very modest rites of passage. I mean, it's stunning to me. But uh, yeah, they didn't maybe even go far enough here with what prom could be. This is a small town in Maine, going back to that King thing where everything's set in Maine, where you see a license plate. Yeah, I, I saw the license plate. I wanted to know if this was anywhere USA or a specific place, and it does seem to be King's homeland. And again, I like that there's a moment. Everyone's got good character beats here. But right before prom happens, the gym is decorated. Chris is busting in there with the pig's blood, setting it up for their prank. And you get just a beat with her face where she sees all the decorations and sees what she's going to be denied. And that's what helps her to continue with this prank. That she's like, yes, this is why I'm doing it. Again, it's in parallel to Carrie. Who probably, again, I would say, would attack this prom and all that it represents if she had been excluded from it. But now that she's being brought into it, she doesn't have to feel that way. And it's in parallel to Sue, who's doing the decorations, and, oh, she's vomiting. Does anyone not know she's pregnant but her? I, you know what? I didn't quite put it together. I thought it was weird and it did occur to me, but it just comes out of left field. It's like the one scene that has a disconnection with every other scene in this movie. I, it's a setup. Looking back in the past, I should have known, known, yeah. but I can't say that it, it totally cohered. I was just like, maybe she's sick because she saw some kids looking at a laptop and she assumed that they were watching the video again. It passed by very quickly, but yes, I should have known. That's exactly what they were setting up here. I'm right there with you, Stuart. I missed it, too. I thought, oh, maybe she realized she's missing out on this, too, just like Chris did, and she got a little sick. Yeah. I was wondering if that was it. King did make Sue pregnant in the original, and the fact that there's that overt sex scene between Tommy and Sue, even though it doesn't look like either one of them finished, but <laughs> apparently they did at some point. <laughs> yeah, that, I, he... I thought that was the whole point, that she was so upset that they didn't finish. Well, you know, you don't actually have to finish for a pregnancy. <laughs> Yes, now our PSA on underage sex. Yes. <laughs> Coitus interruptus is not 100%. It is not a birth control. Practice abstinence just like Carrie. <laughs> but we do get to prom and Chloe Grace Moretz, again, she's found her strength. She didn't even get to go to the spa with the twins. She just did it herself and she looks better here than she ever did when hanging out with those girls in Kick-Ass 2 and drooling over Union J. Again, it's a hole in this movie that I don't relate to her when she's slow dancing for the first time, when she's still going, oh, can I just take a minute in this limo before we go in there? I'm like, 
Come on. I was so empathetic. I was so on her side. I was so in her portrayal. I can't believe you didn't go with that. No, you know what? I like her performance, but her looks betray her. It is not Carrie to me. Yeah, again, she's a great actress. I am convinced she will win the Oscar one day. Miscast. Hear what I'm saying. I don't buy it because she's hit girl. So I don't buy her until she's killing kids. I also like that they include from King something that I always thought was important. She votes for herself. She wins by one vote. She did this somewhat to herself. They did stuff the ballot box in this, but they didn't stuff it enough. (laughs) She wins by one vote. Yeah, they hedged their bets. This is how they should have played it. We're going to rig the election, but uh uh-oh, we got caught, and now we have to go with the regular vote. And guess what? They won by one vote anyway. Then yes, it's an irony that the vote for herself is what put her in harm's way. But the fact that she was going to go up on that stage anyway because Chris had ensured it didn't matter what she had voted for. What about the paper cut she gets when she's voting for herself? Is that to say she's becoming more like her mother as she overpowers? She votes for herself and then she cuts herself? No, I took that as an omen. You know, they said to the devil with false modesty and they vote for it, but then she cuts herself. I think there's something conflicted about this story and I've always felt it. It's like, hey, Margaret White, crazy religious lunatic. But she's kind of right in the end, like, to the devil with false modesty, but now, oops, now I've cut myself. Now horrible things are going to happen because I betrayed that religion that made my mother so crazy. Yeah, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people aren't out to get you. I think that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And yes, she thought that they were going to hurt her. And yes, it's an omen of the blood to come. And... I was worried. I mentioned this in our Carrie 2002 review because the blood in the trailer was black. And I'm like, oh, come on. How how toned down is this? I actually thought this movie might be PG-13. That's what they actually do in comic books to make it more kid-friendly. All blood is black. Yeah, and they do that in tons of movies where they have to tone down the violence for a lower rating. I was so happy. I guess they just toned it down for the trailer to get a green band trailer. When that red blood flows, man, it is gory. It is great. I think it's CGI from the way that it hits and splashes a certain way. But I really like that. And Chloe Grace Moretz, yes, this is the time I really thought Hit Girl. She pulls out that Hit Girl performance, that Hit Girl rage, and it reminded me a little bit of the Six Stick from Kick-Ass 2. Like so many things in this film, I'm conflicted. I, yeah, I love her performance when she goes full-on telekinetic and starts killing people. I like the way that blood falls, and yeah, I guess it's CGI, so that's why it could just flow so perfectly. But then the way she looks when that blood, after it drips off of her, I don't know, it looks like it was hand-painted on to look creepy. Like, one side has a little bit more, it kind of looks like it's supposed to be running mascara running down the way that red is i don't know there's something so artificial looking about it 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 kind of distanced itself from me that didn't bother me i liked also how she pulled it up off herself the telekinesis i wondered what the hell was with that opening logo when it's carrying blood and the blood's going up i'm like what the hell is that so i'm glad that it was tying in to what she does here it made me have a little akira flashback yeah it was fun (laughs) but yeah the violence that happens here I think that this is one place where the movie actually does improve on De Palma. The violence that happens in the third act is astonishing. It's obviously, and we knew this, we could expect this from a movie in 2013, it's much more graphic 
than it was in 1976. But it was stunning. I mean, when she gives that first blowback and you see one of the girls, I think it's Heather, go flying into the door and cracking it. And just I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Like, I knew instantly. I'm like, this rage is going to be the best rage we've ever seen. And it was. Man, crushing those people in those bleachers. Yeah. And uh. I'm so glad to hear you say this, Stuart. I was so afraid that you'd be like, ah, CGI fakery, De Palma was better. That's what I'd expect <laughs> from you. So I'm so glad to hear you were as enjoying this as much as I was because this is great. I'm going to give props not only to modern technology, but to Moretz. I love that she didn't recreate the sissy SpaceX eye motion. She's using the force. She's conducting it. She's reaching her hands out and moving things like that. I love the body language that really ties Carrie to the action. Kudos to Moretz. Kudos to the effects people. Hell, I'll even give some kudos to Price. Yeah, there's something with the way she kind of cocks her neck and sticks it out in her arms. Almost like doing this weird, like, Egyptian movements to me. It seemed, yeah, very otherworldly when she's going about and conducting all this mayhem. I do have a question. There's a scene. I don't know why the scene is in the film. When she is studying her telekinesis and she's watching someone flip pages on a youtube video and a guy walks over and he's like you know you can make that full screen and i'm like oh is this gonna be a friend later was that the av geek that was walking around filming this Uh, okay yeah he had a big camera that's how i tied it together too i'm like why does that guy have a camera that looks like it would fit more in de palma's world than ours i mean (laughs) i'm sure yearbook staffs are even using iphones these days yeah but i think this is an important death because it's the one person that goes down that we see that didn't deserve it. He was kind to Carrie, and he still died. But she didn't see him as the guy from study hall who showed her how to make the image bigger. She saw him as the guy that was filming her, and that is what she is fighting. She is fighting that YouTube video. And let's not forget that video is up on the screen at that moment, redoubling the humiliation. It actually helps me believe that students would laugh at this instead of like we all said with the Palmas, be kind of creeped out, hope the blood didn't get on us, what disease does it have, and let's run out of here. Yes. And the fact that this one, Tommy, does die. We've seen Tommy get hit on the head time and time again with a bucket. In Kings, it killed him. Here, it clearly killed him. I like that Carrie doesn't go home homicidal until she realizes you killed the one person who was genuinely nice to me. She doesn't know why, but he pulled her out of the shell and that sets her off. It's not that she got blood on her. It's not even the video, although I'm sure this all added to it. You killed Tommy. Fuck y'all. Yes. Feminists fire up your blogs. Carrie doesn't get really mad until the male dies, till her date dies. I I thought that was an interesting decision. I don't know how I feel about like, that they could punish her all she wants, but I, I guess if she did have that clique of friends, that's who she would protect, is that clique of friends, that she doesn't care about herself, but she cares about those who have reached out to her, which made it kind of weird that she killed the video camera guy that did help her in the library. I thought maybe they set that up because she would save him for showing that act of kindness. But more than ever, I think this is a sympathetic version of Carrie, even more than in King's book. Here... This does feel like an X-Men moment, doesn't it? It feels like so many of the superhero films we've seen, a little bit more homicidal, but... Yeah, she's killing this guy with the camera, but then she saved Miss Darjan. We we think she's going to kill her. She's using her first choked Darth Vader powers, raising her in the air as the floor fills with water, and we're going to get those electric wires again. But then she throws her on the stage and saves her. To me, it's conflicted. She's saving some of the people that were nice to her and killing others that were nice to her. No, she kills everyone that was mean to her. But like I said, she didn't see the kid behind the camera. She saw the camera, and that's what she attacked. 
Desjardins was interesting. I didn't know which way it was going to go. We've had versions where she lived. We had versions where she died. How were they going to play it? She ends up treating her just like her mother. Be quiet. No more speaking from you. Lift you up to let you know who's boss. But I'm going to go protect you as I fry the floor. What about the two African-Americans bust in from Dover? They were nice to her. She catches one of them on fire. They get a nasty death. Yeah, that's true. I think she kills those her own age. Desjardins, why she gets a pass. It did tell me more than ever that Desjardins was supposed to be sympathetic the whole way through and the most of any. But the fact that she lets Desjardins live, it makes Carrie more sympathetic. I think she should have crushed the larynx at that point and just killed her. I know they shot a ton of different endings for this. They were just a month ago doing test screenings with five different endings for this film. I got to wonder if there's one version where Desjardins lived, one version where Desjardins had her neck snapped, and the audiences who checked the box decided, oh, we kind of like Greer. To me, I like that they went with this version. I agree. It could have been done by committee, but they voted correctly. I like the fact that ultimately Desjardins is treated like another mother. You meddle in my business, you talk too much, be quiet, but I'm going to save you. And I think that that's the right impulse here. I also think that it's the same impulse that made Margaret White protect her infant that made Carrie so protective of Tommy. You mentioned feminist. I don't think it was that she loved a man more than herself. I think that it was that she finally loved something and that that had been taken from her is why she's raging. But if she's raging and against everyone, against the people who were nice to her, against the AV geek, against the person who liked her dress and couldn't believe she made it herself, Desjardins, if you want to make Carrie more horrific, should have died. And lots of people escape this time. There's a lot of people that don't die. Yeah, I agree. That's why, again, I go back to, I think just the mean people were truly killed. Yeah, some bystanders were caught in the fire, but I think the targets... I mean, when Carrie leaves the gym, she's not trying to get anyone that's running to their car. She's trying to get Chris and Billy. This is the one moment of the film that really made me roll my eyes. I love the entire thing uh, that I was watching. I was so into the characters. When she stomps the ground and the ground cracks like a bad, stupid video game move. She's the Hulk! Oh my god, I hate that. That is so... And I tried to write it off like she is so telekinetic, she can move tectonic plates, but then why does she have to struggle to move a car? I mean, they did amp her powers up. She did use a little bit of pyrokinesis, you notice, when she locked her mother in the closet, but the, I stamp the ground and it crumbles. That's really lame. Yeah, and it, it didn't look good. I liked it. I was in this moment. Again, I felt like the battle has been about Chris and Carrie. Sue has almost been a non-entity. I think they picked their favorite characters, each Carrie iteration. And here, I think Chris is much more interesting than Sue is. And yeah, that it ends up being that she and Billy are going to run away. It's the same thing that Margaret says to Carrie right before prom. I'll just run away. I'll protect you. We don't have to do this anymore. They're, they're living parallel lives here. And even at the end, when she turns the car on her and tries to kill her and gets that great windshield death, that her face in that broken glass is exactly like that moment earlier in the film where Carrie's looking at the mirror in the bathroom and her image shatters. I think they've done a really good job of showing that Chris and Carrie are the same thing and respond exactly the same way 
when they feel hurt. I also got, you know, Jacob, you mentioned the how the blood looked painted on the face. I thought the blood looked equally painted on Chris's face there. They were really giving us a doppelganger type of thing. Yeah, but that shot was so great with their face stuck in that windshield. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. That was squeamish, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't like the CGI of the glass breaking, but I liked it once the face was kind of stuck yeah. there. And I want to also call out, you know, I like that she videotaped the plug it up, but my favorite use of modern technology in this whole movie is her texting during prom. She texts Sue and says, your girl looks pretty, not for long. I mean, that's such a narcissistic Chris thing to do, isn't it? And that's what gets Sue there. And then I like that Chris just completely pusses out and her last text of her life is, daddy, come help me. (laughs) Yeah, I did like that it gave more of a reason for Sue to show up at the prom suddenly and that De Palma one is like, I don't know, she just wanted to check out Carrie's dress, wanted to make sure her boyfriend wasn't cheating on her. I don't know. Here, yeah, Sue is going to defend Carrie. Yeah, the texting in this movie is good. I agree. It also gave a reason why Billy would get angry. Up to that point, he's a co-collaborator. He loves Chris. They're getting hot for each other, but he threatens to get violent with her only because now she's leaving written messages of what they're doing. I mean, he's right. This is a federal offense. You don't need to be texting about it. I really went with all of that. I did agree. Yes, Jacob. The fact that Sue shows up for a reason. Much helpful. If Sue had to show up at all, that's a good reason. Again, Desjardin saves her life by throwing her out. And I don't get, though, why she goes to Carrie's house. Yeah, it's kind of convenient. And I, I was... Because they. I really thought they were going to go for a 2002 ending. I really did. I wondered. I will say I wondered. Because Carrie goes home and we get the we'll pray and she's stabbed in the back. But it's not as bad a stab as what Piper Laurie gave Sissy Spacek. And then I'm like, is Carrie going to live? Could Carrie possibly come back in a sequel? (laughs) And (laughs) then they stab Margaret. And I was thinking about you, Stuart, because you love the potato peeler. Here she gets a ruler. Yeah. Yeah. In bullet time, no less. I actually love this. I thought that I would, like you, poo-poo the CGI of it. And not all of it was great. I can say there were shots and moments. I don't need to to go through shot by shot. But there were things that felt hokey. But by and large, the when they're battling over the knife and it's flipping around the floor and all of that. And then we get that final moment of sorry, mama, and all the sharp objects are surrounding her. Kind of Looney Tunes, but I think we've earned it. I think that this movie has finally, after spending 90 minutes of being a drama, finally realized that it's a pulpy horror revenge story, and I'm enjoying it for that. Yeah, I love how Margaret gets it. I love that it's, again, the I now want my mother back, even though she has hurt me so much, and she pulls the knives back out. But then when Sue shows up, I'm like, I understand from the book that Sue and Carrie got this psychic bond. But in this movie, even though Carrie's powers are more than I can move things, I don't get Sue's arrival. And I do get Carrie's going to kill her too, though. Yeah, in previous versions, I felt like Sue was the one nice person to me, so I'm not going to kill her. Here, I think she would actually die. If she wasn't actually pregnant with Tommy's seed then she would be dead. Then the rocks would come down on her and they would all go to hell. But because this is the only thing left on Earth of the one thing that she loved, again, it comes down to a baby. A baby can change the difference. Like Margaret wanting to kill everyone and then realizing she could love one other thing, 
Carrie realizes she could love this baby, and it's the baby that's spared. Sue is just the one harboring. I, I didn't make that connection that it was because it was Tommy's baby. I thought, oh, she's got a psychic baby. There, There's your sequel, that maybe Tommy's dad was the same dad as Carrie's, and that, that telekinetic power had been passed on. She's able to sense that. I do have to think, we've seen four versions of Carrie now, read the book, know about the book. If you hadn't seen the other versions or read the book, would the fact that the house is getting rained upon with stones be confusing? Oh, yes. I think without that young girl Carrie scene, which I don't know if they filmed, but I kind of think they did since they did the rock scene here, that it's confusing that this house is getting a rain of stones. I'm right there with you, Arnie. I was watching this and I was, I've seen all those other films and I'm like, man, this must be really confusing why rocks are just dropping out of the air. I, I was kind of confused about it and I've seen this story three times now. It was mentioned in that Milton poem. It was something Tommy said about bringing down the temple. I wish I knew the poem. I thought, again, it was Samson or something. I thought it was a biblical reference. But there was something about a temple coming down. And I'm wondering if we went back to that poem, if it wasn't some kind of explanation. No, no, the story of Samson makes sense. He was a man that was given incredible powers as long as he didn't cut his hair. But then he lets a woman cut his hair and he loses those powers. He's chained up. He's betrayed. And he prays to God one last time. Let me push these pillars. Let me bring this temple down on these sinners. My life will be sacrificed, but at least I'll be able to destroy these sinners as well. It it does kind of reflect Carrie's story. Yeah, I I think it's relevant to what's happening here. And if you had paid attention to that detail, it would make this feel less jarring that it's happening this way. Now, I did say there were four endings to this. None are vastly different than what we get. What we get is Sue being interviewed by the White Commission and then visiting Carrie's grave. That was one of the endings they were seeing. By Stuart, always a tool. Whenever you see a Stuart in a movie, they've got to be some toady or, or unlikable character. There was one that ripped off De Palma's. They had the hand come out of the grave and this time pull Sue into the ground with Carrie and then credits roll. Eh, can't do that again. I I feel like they didn't have an ending. And so they just brought it back to the rose. That What I get from this is that Sue sees Carrie as innocent still. She's the white rose. She's not that thing that should be cast to hell. She still sees and remembers the goodness of the girl and not all the bad. Awfully high-minded of her, given that her boyfriend and the father of her child is is dead. But but Carrie, it's the one person Carrie didn't kill. Right. Chris killed him. Yeah, she was going to the grave next and then <laughs> vandalizing Chris's, yeah. I didn't like the end thing, though, of Carrie's scream and the CGI tombstone break apart. Again, it kind of is like, we're going to leave a door open where if this does really well, Carrie's back! I hope not. Yeah, they, either Carrie could come back. I really think they'll do something with Sue's kid. Uh, who knows? Yeah, they really did leave it open to go a couple different ways. They'll never get Chloe Grace Moretz back, is my belief. Yeah, and I think that any sequel that should spawn from this will probably go straight to DVD. And, <laughs> and yes, it will involve Rachel or Carl or some other iteration here. It won't be Carrie. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Carrie? 2013 version. Jacob. You know, I'm really trying to come to this as, what if this was the only version I had seen? That's how I want to approach this. And when I think about this story, and I said this with the Palmas, 
I, I haven't read the book. It's not a great story to me. De Palma really brought a vision to it that made it work. To me, this is a ghost story you tell around the campfire where it's always the same. It's always the trucker who's turning his lights on to scare the guy in the backseat that was going to slash you. The call's always coming from upstairs. You know, the, the endings are always the same. We know where they're going. You know, I think about Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Those, okay, you come up with new dreams. You come up... <laughs> You come up with new ways to kill people. I could see why you'd go back and you could really have a lot of room for creativity. But this Carrie story, there's not that room for me. And, and that hurts it, especially when I've seen a better version. But what I see here, there are opportunities that they did jump on, I guess. that There is a little bit more character development. There was a lot of room for that. It has its moments. There's a few more things that make a little bit more sense here. But you know what? If you're trying to sell me that this is a story about bullying, well, yeah, they put up a YouTube video. That never really goes anywhere. There's a few lines thrown out. It's still really, what's the answer to bullying? Going full on Columbine on the bullies and shooting them up. I don't know if the story here is much different than what I've seen before. What I am going to say, I'm going to give it the faintest of green arrows up for those who are young and aren't going to go back and watch a 70s film this okay i i guess this is a pretty good cover version of that de palma one you know if you've seen that de palma one i don't think this really has much to offer there's the miscasts heard it more than the, the actors that do work here the horror yeah it's grittier it's more violent i guess go watch the youtube version of the prom scene then but Faintest of Green Arrows up, faintest of recommends for those who just aren't going to go back and watch a 40-year-old movie. Stuart. What Carrie do you want? I feel like if you wanted a drama where all the character work is done well and it's got a good cast and it sells you on the high school environment, this is better than De Palma's. This is a more plausible, logical, less hysterical vision. But yeah... This is also a horror movie, and it waits an awfully long time to get there. I think that if you wanted the horror, De Palma's is the way to go. But the question you're asking me is, is this a good movie? I wrestle with this. Even now, I'm not sure what's coming out of my mouth. Almost is, I think, my answer. This is almost a good remake. My holdout, the thing that I'm busting up against, and I can't believe it because I never anticipated it being a problem, is that I did not buy Chloe in this role for most of the movie. Until she is the self-confident maniac killing people, I don't buy her. I just, I don't think she works as vulnerable, wilted Lily. It just, I didn't see it. And with Sissy Spacek, I bought her as both the tormentor and the victim. Here, it is only half working. And so, I think for that reason, it is a mild not recommend. I could mostly accept that this is a by-the-numbers remake with some nice finessing, but if you don't give me a, a memorable carry, then I'm not going to remember this carry. That's a shame. I really like Chloe Grace Moretz in this, and I agree she is a strong and attractive girl, again, unconventionally so, but... I believed her plight. She, with her dowdy hair and her body language, it took me maybe 15, 20 minutes of a 90-minute movie to go with the portrayal, but I did, and the stronger she became, the more I went with it. Julianne Moore, I believe that like Piper Laurie, she deserves a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for this. I think she is phenomenal. She is so great in this film, such a standout, that she elevates Chloe's acting 
just by standing in that shadow. I don't think that Chloe necessarily deserves one the way Sissy Spacek got one for some of the reasons you mentioned, Stuart. I think the rest of this cast does great. If I'm reviewing this without even thinking of the past three versions of Carrie, it's a recommend for sure. Abso-fucking-lutely, I think this is a great version of Carrie. Not good, great version of Carrie. I like the high school drama aspect. I love the telekinetic horror aspect. I like the little character changes they've made to help add to Sue's motivation. Sue doesn't just decide all at once. She feels bad in the shower. Then Tommy is berating her. Then she's called out by Desjardins. The only casting fauble, I will point, is Desjardins. She's the only role in this entire movie that I wish they'd gone back and gotten a stronger actress for. This isn't a comedy. Get rid of Greer. Now, when I compare it to De Palma's, the question is, is this necessary? It is necessary for those people who won't go back and watch a 40-year-old film. I'm going to take the stance that this film renders De Palma's as obsolete to anything but film students. De Palma's is more artful. It has the split screen. It has the camera movements, some of which I liked, some of which I didn't. But this is better paced than De Palma's. It doesn't have that long, languid middle. It doesn't have people making actions before it would make sense to do. De Palma was better at suspense. I never considered this a horror film, but a suspense film. De Palma pulled off more suspense. I'm still not sold on Kimberly Pierce as a director. Didn't care for Boys Don't Cry. Like this movie, a better director could have made it more suspenseful, though. This is very much a drama uh, along the lines of Boys Don't Cry. It shows me that she's more interested in telling stories about young people who are conflicted and outcast than she is about telekinetics and horror. But while De Palma's ratchets up the suspense, it is so fucking dated that I completely understand that people who weren't alive when that film came out will never want to go back and see it. I don't blame you for that. William Cat is terrible in it. The afros are hysterical in it. The outfits are bad. Spacek and Piper Laurie do great things. I love that old Carrie, but... Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm hearing something different, but go on. <laughs> I think that this movie now has made De Palma's carry in the realm of what I would call horror homework. If you want to know your roots of horror and suspense, go see De Palma's carry. If you just want to see a good adaptation of King's novel, here you go. Well, in my class, it would be mandatory viewing. If it's homework, it should be assigned to everyone. But I hear what you're saying. It's I, I think we're all in agreement. This is the second best carry <laughs> movie in the franchise. Best. Not most artful, but best. This is the best for you. Yeah. More than the other one. Yes. Wow. Okay. Well, then we're not in agreement. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but the only two you need to bother with are the original and this one. I think the other two, you know, carry the rage and carry 2002, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a fond spot in my heart for the rage. The more I go back <laughs> and think about it with our review, it's so terrible that I'm starting to find a fondness. It's becoming a Halloween three to me. Yes. And I'm saying you only need to own this if you refuse to own a 40 year old movie. Yes. I'm going to own both. I own the original. I'm going to own this one. I think you're in a minority. I think you'll pick your carry. I think one will mean something to you. And for me, it's always going to be that original. Sorry, nice try. But this one, nah, I won't go back to it. Well, you didn't recommend it. So why would you? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I mean, there's good things here. I mean, not recommend doesn't mean bad. I, I want to equate that. This is not a bad movie, and anyone that sees it and likes it, I'm just going to guess that they're much younger than I am. I'm not much younger, but I did really like this. I really liked the portrayals. I really liked the characterizations. I just wish it had a little bit more directorial flair and a better gym teacher. Those are the two things I'd improve. But I'm so happy looking at this summer movie season and horror movies this year. We started with the remake of Evil Dead. Really, we're going to just be doing catalog films for the rest of the year. We're ending with the theatrical release of Carrie. I'm happy this year. This has been a pretty damn good year for the horror reboots. Certainly have kept going to the theaters uh, for the rest of our calendar year. I, at least we get to stay home and watch DVDs, starting next week with Swamp Thing. <laughs> That's a good thing? <laughs> I don't know that it's a good thing at all. I have seen that once before. Hazy, boggy, swampy <laughs> memories of it. At least it's not Man-Thing. It's not Man-Thing, but that will be, I think, the debate for me is, is it better or worse than Man-Thing? Well, it's and Wes Craven. We know you're a fan. <laughs> but there'll be two films in that, finishing off our DC for the year, at least until Superman and, and Batman get back on the screens together. And then we got Thor, you know, another Marvel one we got to work in there. And then it's King. For the rest of the year, we got Salem's Lot and The Shining. More King. If you'd like Carrie, uh, the next two books are going to be here before the end of the year. And... Our gold donation series is rapidly winding down. On Halloween is the last day to donate and hear our Simon Pegg, Nick Frost retrospective series of Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, Paul, and Attack the Block. The World's End is coming out in a video on November 19th, but our podcast will be in the vault. So I know a lot of people didn't see this in theaters. A lot of people are waiting to video, but if you want to hear our reviews of the Cornetto trilogy, you need to donate $10 or more on or before Halloween to get all these podcasts so that you can hear our review of The World's End when you've seen it on video. And if you go $25 or more, not only do you get the Simon Pegg, Nick Frost podcast, you get all of our psycho podcasts. Robert Block was friends with Stephen King, you know. King looked up to Block, especially with these early novels like Carrie. Looked up to Block's other fiction as well as Psycho. You can hear Stewart's review of the Psycho books over at booksandnachos.com, but we've reviewed all six Psycho films. This Friday comes the Gus Van Sant remake, but six Psycho films plus five Simon Pegg, Nick Frost films, 11 bonus podcasts for a donation of $25 or more. That's as little as about $2.50 per podcast. Every podcast runs over an hour. We really think that not only does your donation support every show we do, support this carry retrospective, support all the podcasts we do for free every week throughout the year, but... I can't imagine a better value because I spend a buck 29 on iTunes for a four minute song. Here, for the price of two songs, you get an hour of movie reviews, 11 movie reviews for $25 or more. We thank everyone who has donated and we hope that the rest of you get a chance to donate before Halloween when these go in the vault along with all our other shows with no planned release ever. That's right. Reboots and more Julianne Moore talk this Friday and then all those shows are out. So if you've been waiting until you had them all in one big lump this Friday, everything is out. You can go ahead and donate. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. So until next time, it's best if we just go away for a while. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. I liked it. I liked it. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear reviews and analysis of the original Stephen King Carey novel. I read about him on the internet. The internet. And come to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another movie review podcast in the Stephen King Movie Retrospective series. This is so far from over. It's not even in the same area code as over. You can also find more reviews in our archive section. Beautiful. (laughs) We have full retrospective reviews of film series including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Friday the 13th, The Avenger films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Thank you for your support. I'd like your vote. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. To the devil with false modesty. The devil. (laughs) Now Playing's Carrie Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. But you gotta cut it. Go away. Don't tell me no way. You're doing it. Why are you still talking? Just, just do it. You're doing it. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Maybe you should do an accent. No, don't do an accent. That's dumb. The Carrie films are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Well, that's not even in the Bible. It doesn't say that anywhere. What? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Did any of you ever stop to think that Carrie White has feelings? Do any of you ever stop to think? Now Playing is a Inganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Thank you, Mom. You can go to bed now. Carrie White is a high school introvert. I'm going to change inflection. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go counterintuitive, not say things the way I normally would. She's barred from, she refuses to do the gym. I should have changed this one line and I didn't. <laughs> she refuses to do the gym. What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. The tr- tr- track exercise. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's the problem. No soul, right? No soul. <laughs> oh, that's just gingers though. That's just a subgenre of the redheads. <laughs> okay. His delivery, maybe it's very natural, and in fact it is. It started reminding me of my nephews, who I don't really like. So, <laughs> I guess they're not fans of now playing. I hope not. Or that's getting cut. <laughs> it's not getting They reminded me of my nephew. <laughs> Coitus interruptus is not 100%. It is not a birth control. Practice abstinence, just like Carrie. <laughs> Condoms, kids. Condoms. <laughs>
and pills. But, and thank Obama that they're free. <laughs> <laughs> I have to cut that, don't I? Yeah. yeah, you will be cutting that. I didn't even have to say it. I was just like, well, obviously that's not going in. <laughs> I might blooper it. You angry emails can go to Arnie. Yeah. <laughs> Against the people who were nice to her, against the AV geek. I'm, I'm so stereotyping AV geeks. Against the guy with the camera. But I liked it once the face was kind of stuck yeah. there. It kind of took me back to Hellraiser 3 with the face in the pillar. Oh, you and Hellraiser 3. Let's not take me there <laughs> just yet. Can we, can we please spare me of that? And. He's right. This is a federal offense. You don't need to be texting about it. Well, it's a felony, not a federal offense. I don't think <laughs> they didn't cross state lines. Okay, they were right. planning <laughs> on running out of town. They were going to cross state lines. <laughs> oh, but Carrie saw to that. The sequel with Tommy Lee Jones. U.S. Marshals <laughs> tracking him down.